I don't know if you've ever noticed that a lot of Egyptian artifact statues are often missing their nose. And I wonder if you ever have, like me, ever wondered why. And I found out that Edward Blyberg, he's the, uh, oversees the Brooklyn Museum of Egyptian Art, uh, he did a study on this, and it turns out it's not because of thousands of years of wear and tear. In fact, it's because there was a, there's actually a widespread pattern of deliberate destruction to these Egyptian artifacts, and not just three-dimensional statues, even like flat reliefs would have the noses destroyed. And what they found was that it wasn't random or reckless vandalism, but it was targeted precision, revealing skill and intent. And so it turns out, as they did research, that ancient Egyptians uh, believed that the essence of a deity could inhabit that image, whether a statue or a flat relief. And so uh, there would be purposeful vandalism to remove the strength of that deity by damaging a part of the body of that imagery. So the way the thinking goes, without a nose, that this statue's spirit would cease being able to breathe, effectively killing it, killing that god. And in fact, uh, pharaohs back then would issue terrible punishment decrees for anyone who even dared to threaten, like vandalizing their, uh, their statues. I know that's like an interesting bit of trivia, and that's just superstition. But today what we want to explore is, are there idols hidden in your life and mine? And if so, do they have some kind of power over me? And how do we break the hold of that without needing to break the nose of a statue? If you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in front of you or under the seat around you. Uh, And if you are a visitor and you don't own a Bible at home, uh, take that Bible. Those are purposely Bibles that we we, uh, purchase to give away to our friends and visitors. But we're in this series called Clear where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel and the good news about Jesus. And that the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in the city of Corinth, non-Jewish, primarily people of non-Jewish background, that instead of being blinded by the values of the world to see clearly through their identity in Christ as people who are loved and forgiven and transformed by the work of Jesus on the cross, to be able to guide us and grow us in holiness and unity together. And it's not just theological stuff. He talks about all these different areas of life that it practically applies to. And so today, he's going to talk about understanding how dangerous a little idolatry in our lives can be to ourselves and to other people around us, how to identify those idols, and how to remove them. So I want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Let's stop right there. 
So what's happening here in verses 1 and 2 is that the ancient Israelites, they were delivered out of slavery and death in Egypt. They started their journey through this wilderness, going towards a promised land. And in Exodus chapters 13 and 14, they were following the supernatural presence of God in a pillar of cloud, and as well as miraculously passing through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And that Paul is saying this was effectively like their baptism at the beginning of their journey of faith as a nation. How so? Because now, once they left Egypt, passed through the cloud and the waters, they're now identifying themselves as God's people, holy and separate, not just from Egyptians, but from the world and its systems and values. Just as the Corinthians and just as us, when we begin our journey with God by being baptized in Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, that is us identifying with him, that we are his people, distinct from the world, belonging to God. And so in verses 3 and 4, after their baptism, God provides for them throughout the desert a supernatural manna, bread that comes from heaven, as well as water literally pouring forth from a rock in Exodus chapter 16 and 17. And Paul says that it's not just a rock of stone, but from the very presence of Jesus accompanying them even in the Old Testament as their rock of salvation, Psalm 62 tells us, giving us the waters of eternal life in John chapter 4 verse 14. So it's not just about their physical sustenance, but, there's, but of spiritual significance, the same way that you and I, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, take bread and wine in Christ together. It's a symbol of our communion, our allegiance, our intimacy with Jesus together as God's people. But in verse 5, despite all that the Israelites had experienced of God's power and His presence, even identifying as His people, that God was not pleased with their faith, that in fact, most of them, he, actually Paul uses a euphemism, it's actually all of them from that first generation of wilderness Israelites, except for two people, died in the wilderness. Why? Because in verse 6, he warns the Corinthians then and for us now, not to desire evil as they, the Israelites, did. Well, what was their evil? What was the sin that they were pursuing? Verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were. And so the big idea of the text that we're looking at this morning is that like the Israelites, our idolatry may reveal that we may not be saved people even if we think we're God's people. Now, that's kind of disturbing. How can that be? I'm a Christian, right? I profess my faith in Jesus, but many people claim that, that title. I was looking at the research uh, for 2021, uh, both a kind of a summation of uh, Gallup polls, Pew Research, Barnum polls that about 65 to 70 percent of American adults identify themselves as Christians. And yet, only 45 percent say that they pray daily to God. Only 34 percent say they read the Bible, the Word of God, our way of hearing from God on a weekly basis. Only 25 percent attend a church regularly despite God's command to gather together as His people and worship Him. And so we see there's this big discrepancy between those who claim to love and worship Jesus and whether or not we genuinely follow him in daily life or have other priorities, what we might call idols. And so like the Israelites, you and I, we can encounter the presence and the power of Christ. We can be blessed by the provision of Christ. We might even identify 
as his people through baptism and communion in Christ, yet not have a genuine salvation and relation with Jesus because our hearts and our lives turn towards loving and serving and worshiping idols as a higher priority in place of Jesus. Yes, but uh, I don't walk around bowing to like little animal statues or go and burn offerings at the pagan temple. How am I practicing idolatry? It's a little bit more subtle and complicated than that. Second half, verse 7, as it is written, the people, the Israelites, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell, that's a euphemism for were struck dead, in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Ooh, pretty heavy stuff. But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what's happening here is Paul gives us four examples of the Israelites' idolatry. In verse 7, that despite all they've seen and experienced from God in the wilderness, he quotes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, that the Israelites, they sat down to eat and drink and celebrate before a golden calf. This is while Moses, their leader and their shepherd and pastor, was up on the mountain with God. And while he was gone, they decided like, well, where's God? Or we don't, we're getting a little bit nervous. It's been a long time. And so they built this idol out of gold, and they were eating, drinking, and celebrating before it. Now, I want you to pay attention here because this is how, this is, this is your Bible study lesson. I want you to notice that Paul intentionally didn't quote the part about making the idols in Exodus 32, verse 1 to 3. He doesn't quote the part about making sacrifices to the idols in verses 5 and 6. The part that he intentionally quotes, weirdly enough, is when they were eating and drinking and celebrating in the presence of this golden calf. And the reason why is because similarly, we saw in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthians are wrestling with a similar issue. That for them, in their culture growing up, they didn't grow up knowing the Bible, following God. And it was common in their culture to eat at these pagan temples like a restaurant. People would do it all the time because meat was rare. And so they'd come and, and meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, a lot of times the leftovers were given. So you get the prime, uh, prime rib and the best steaks. And so they're wrestling with this question of, is it okay to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? And what we're learning from Paul is that idolatry is not just bowing to a statue or making offerings to a statue. It's when we honor and accept and celebrate a false god by participating in its presence. It's when we spend our time, our money, and our energy around something that's unhealthy or unholy, and then we claim that we're not worshiping that thing. It's kind of like saying, well, I'm not really a 49er fan, but I just spent $1,000 to be in their presence at the playoffs. Understanding what it is that you're dedicating yourself to. And in verse 8, he talks about a second example that don't uh, indulge in sexual immorality as some of the Israelites did, and 23,000 of them were struck dead in Numbers chapter 25 in the wilderness. 
And this is relevant for the Corinthians because you may remember in their culture that they grew up exposed to, there were hundreds of prostitute priestesses of Aphrodite who had wandered through the streets of Corinth soliciting sex for money, but not as prostitutes in the general sense, but because you were giving a financial offering to Aphrodite and receiving sex as part of your worship experience. And why that's important is that it, it was like, in their culture, sex outside of marriage was considered accessible, acceptable, and even spiritual in their culture. Yes, but how's that idolatry? Because you need to understand that sexual decisions are always spiritual decisions. Now, we talked about in, from chapter 6 that God made sex as this beautiful expression of physical, emotional, and spiritual oneness between a husband and a wife in a covenant, a holy covenant commitment before him. And so it's idolatry when we engage in all kinds of sexual activity that's against God's word because we're choosing to obey our desire instead of trusting God and his ways. Verse 9, Paul says the third way that, we, that they practice idolatry, don't put Christ to the test as the Israelites did and they were destroyed by serpents in Numbers chapter 21 verse 5. And why this passage is significant is because the Israelites, they were rejecting this incredible bread. Can you imagine you're experiencing miraculous bread from heaven? And they started rejecting it because they got tired of it, right? They're eating the same thing day after day. And what they said in that passage in Numbers 21 verse 5 is, we loathe this worthless food. <laughs> miraculous bread from heaven. We loathe it. It's worthless. So why is this idolatry or why is this testing God? David tells us in Psalm chapter 78, verse 18, that the Israelites tested God in their heart by demanding food that they craved and received judgment for it. You see, testing God declares, what you give me isn't good enough, God. And it's idolatry because then what I crave, what I treasure, what I desire is more valuable than honoring God, His goodness, and His provision. Verse 10, don't grumble as some of the Israelites did. You see, you may know this story. They were constantly rebelling and complaining against God and his messenger Moses in Numbers chapters 11, 14, and 16. And why this is a problem is it's not just saying that what you give me, God, is not good enough. It's saying you, God, are not good enough when we grumble against him. I, that I don't trust you. I'm not satisfied by you. I will not speak well of you. Because I know what I want, and I know better than what Jesus should give me. And so I'm choosing my own will and way above honoring God and His will for us. And the common thread between these four weird examples where people aren't necessarily bowing before a statue is that the Israelites were supposedly God's people, but it turned out that most were not, and they were judged for it because idolatry elevates our cravings and desires above trusting and honoring God as Lord. It makes our desires Lord instead of Jesus as Lord. And so I want to ask you, what is that thing for you? Like the Corinthians, like us, it could be good steak, good wine, good sex. It can be relationships. It can be our rights. It can be our appearance or accomplishments. It could be wanting kids, a career, comforts, control. Like the Israelites, it can be cravings of the body or even complaints against God. 
But the commonality is that these are things that we want that can climb onto the throne of our heart as Lord in place of Jesus. And so I want to ask you, what is that desire that would cause you not to trust God and take His place in directing your attitudes, actions, and, and decisions about life? Now, the bad news in verses 11 and 12 is that the Israelites, they thought they were God's people, yet they died instead of being delivered to the promised land. And it's a warning to us, Paul says, don't overestimate your self-control and don't underestimate your sinfulness. That with the coming of Jesus, that the clock of history is ticking down towards the end. And so we don't want to think that we're praising Jesus if we're really prioritizing our idols, because then, like the Israelites, we'll fail to receive our promised land, but what we receive is a better promised land, an eternal promised land in Christ. That's the bad news. But the good news in verse 13 is whatever idol that you honor, that you struggle with, you're not alone. I don't want you to beat yourself up thinking like, I'm this terrible, horrible person. It turns out that our temptations towards idolatry, they're common to the Israelites, to the Corinthians, to all people, and God who faithfully loves us and saves us, will not let us face an idolatry beyond what we can resist. That it says that in this passage, He provides a way out from the temptation and the devastation of idolatry. That's that next slide. If we're willing to turn from our sin to God by faith in Jesus. And so you're wondering, well, what does that look like when I'm facing, when I'm tempted to kind of bow to my desires and give in to my desires and let that be Lord? A Christian man named David was coming home on an overnight train, and he was tired. Now, he had a friend that had come, accompanied him, but he didn't sit with that friend because everyone on that train had kind of spread out to two seats because, you know, it's an overnight trip, and everyone just spread out, maybe stretch their legs and lay down and be able to, to get a little sleep over, overnight. And so people spread out onto two seats over the, the long ride, everyone having an extra seat next to them. Now, around 1 a.m., the train rolls into Kansas City, and more passengers come on board. And then it ended up that everyone who had taken up two seats had to give up their extra seat for other people. Now, an attractive woman walked up to David and said, may I sit next to you? My name is Kathy. And she started chatting with him, and it turned out that she was visiting her mother after an extremely rough patch with a terrible husband. Now, for David, he was eager to get home, see his family after an exhausting church leadership conference, so he didn't think much of it. He was uh, exhausted, and so, okay, that's fine, you know. Please, of course, take the seat. He fell asleep, but then when he woke up in the kind of the middle of the night to find that Kathy was cuddling up with him, and she sleepily kind of turned towards him, oh, I'm sorry, do you mind if I lean my head on your shoulder? And he started thinking in his head, oh, he said to her, I, I guess not. And thinking about, well, she's just tired. You know, I, I don't have to worry. I have a great marriage. Um, I'll be home before noon. You know, it's no big deal. But the truth was that he himself had a tendency to struggle with a desire for the attention and affection of women. And that it oftentimes would override his common sense and take control of his heart and his decisions. What do we call that? An idol. An idol. When something is in charge over you, you give control of something over you more than Jesus. And so he started, this thought started entering into his mind. I wonder what she really wants. Or I wonder what she would allow. 
And then he started cursing himself. I can't believe I just was thinking those kind of things. And there was this tug of war in his heart between his excitement and his fear. And so he cried out to Jesus for help in his weakness and kind of scoured the car with his eyes. And by this incredible stroke of luck, his one friend who came with him to this conference happened to have the only open seat next to him. So he excused himself to go talk with this friend And as he was walking down the aisle of that car back to his friend, he realized maybe, maybe this isn't luck at all. Perhaps this is the way of escape that God talks about providing when I feel overwhelmed by my desires, by my idolatry. And so I think about how often we are tempted, we try, and we fail to resist bowing to our desires. And then we feel shame, and then we beat ourselves up, and then we rinse and repeat this cycle over and over and over. And what the Bible wants to tell you, what Jesus wants to tell you, is that it's not about your willpower or your weakness. But instead, if you could come to Jesus in your moment of temptation, in humility, and in desperation, that we can come and ask Him for help and for hope, for courage, for wisdom, and a way out. Okay, but if all of us kind of have idols in our lives, is having a little idolatry really that bad? Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread Uh, We who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate, to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Uh, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You got to understand, the Roman Empire that the Corinthians grew up in, it spread across like Europe, North Africa, Asia, Judea, and Persia. And so to, to deal with the diversity of cultures, they, and to prevent unrest from conquered or colonized people, they would practice what's kind of like a religious Unitarianism. You may continue worshiping your gods. In fact, we Romans will also worship your gods, and you come and worship ours. That way, no one's god will be offended. And this is the culture that the Corinthians grew up in, and it's admirable for its religious freedom, but dangerous for its religious blending. And so Paul is drawing a line between society's permission and Christian participation in idolatry. And so in verses 14 and 15, he says, don't accept, don't ignore, don't minimize, don't rationalize idolatry in your life. Flee from it. Turn in the opposite direction and run, even if it's just meat sacrificed at a pagan temple diner. Why? Because in verse 16 and 18, when you participate 
in the wine and bread of communion with Christ. It's not a meaningless meal. You're actually partaking in Jesus, his blood and his body sacrificed for our sin. The same way in that in the Old Testament, the Israelites would participate in the fellowship and worship of God when they burnt an offering of meat and then ate some of that before the Lord. And Paul's point in verses 19 and 20 is that food's not the problem, nor is a block of wood or a stone statue. The problem is that pagan sacrifices are not harmless. They're not nothing. They're not for particularly gods, but they're actually made to demons. And you need to understand that demons are real. They are spiritual beings, fallen angels, not ghosts, originally designed to serve and worship God. And instead of joining and uh, instead of doing that, they joined and served Satan, a once proud, mighty angel. Who's, and so with him, they're cast out of heaven, eternally condemned because they rebelled in an attempted coup to set Satan up as God. And Paul is saying, therefore, by partaking in food sacrificed to demons, you are actually participating in communion with demons. Paul says, don't do that because they are not your friend. They do not make deals like cartoons and movies today. That their goal is to deceive and destroy us because they hate those whom God loves. And so he concludes in verse 21 and 22, how long are we going to test God by continuing to eat and drink to both the glory of Jesus and the glory of demons? And that when we do that, we're like the Israelites, that we don't have genuine faith in Christ because we're worshiping something else other than Christ and inviting judgment. We need to take it seriously. And so we need to flee from idolatry because we cannot be in communion with both Jesus and demons. They are mutually exclusive categories and can only coexist with one. Now, you may not eat meat sacrificed to idols, but what are you consuming from a demon? What are you joining yourself with the way that you would in worship and fellowship with Jesus? Because when you do, you're inviting the power and presence of evil into your life. Have you ever seen a sinkhole in real life? You know, cars can park on a street day after day and everything appears normal. And then one day, the asphalt just caves in and the cars disappear into this gigantic hole. And everyone says, whoa, that came out of nowhere. But they're wrong. Because that hole may appear suddenly, but the process leading up to it had been going on for many years. That the underground erosion is invisible, but it was there all along. And that is what the desires of idolatry does. That you can look good on the outside, but underneath there are major problems. There's an erosion of our souls going on for years, demonic influence burrowing into our lives. It's a disaster waiting to happen. And so our lives are affected by our little choices and our little idols, and there's a cumulative effect that can lead to spiritual destruction. And so we need clarity about idolatry. You and I, we are all unceasing worshipers. Whether you are a Christian or not, you are worshiping something. We pursue and sacrifice to the glory of someone or something. And if it's not God, you don't cease worshiping. You just misdirect it to someone or something else. That's what we call an idol. And the human heart is an idol factory. We, invite, we invent all kinds of things to bow in worship of because of our desire. And so may you spend this last few minutes as we close in one or two songs in prayer, asking God to show you what is that idol in your life? Things that you want, that we pursue in honor above Jesus, 
cravings and concerns and complaints that become Lord over our life in place of Jesus and humbly ask Him for help and hope, courage, wisdom, and a way out. And He will because He's good, He's God, and He is a better Savior and Lord than all of the pleasures and treasures of this world. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this moment to speak truth and grace and life to us. We recognize that there are many desires in our life, and they are good things for marriage, for children, for our jobs, for our health, having a pet, all perfectly fine, get married, buy a house, have a dog, make babies, get educated, eat a steak. But we recognize good things can become God things that we turn to for our happiness and our fulfillment that we turn to in times of celebration as well as in times of devastation, that we elevate to the place of God. So would you dig them out? We recognize a lot of the sins in our lives are the fruit, but idolatry is at the root. And we turn our good, God-given desires back to you. Help us to experience them, express them, and seek them in you, in your holiness, in your goodness. And may you be Lord, in Jesus' name.